0: How you been, then
1: Great. Uh things are going well. I had a great Easter, great week. <laughs> we did have a great Easter. We did have a great Easter. Yo.
0: So, me and Derek went to uh, Easter tr- Easter Sunday at Black Church. I wasn't I'm not even sure. Is it proper to call a place as universal as that Black Church cuz there was all kinds of people there and it was queer affirming, which I really appreciated. Yeah. but like it felt like a black church.
1: Yeah, it's a historically black church, but there's okay. a number of others. It's a um, black church. But I still think it's black majority it seemed yeah. like.
0: I would I would definitely concur with that sentiment. All the ushers were black, the pastor was black majority of the people there were black so yeah it, it's black church yeah it's definitely black church it was as long as black church it had a praise team it had a <laughs> it had a choir like a proper gospel choir yeah. which i really enjoyed those songs were also typical of what i'd hear in a black church with a couple uh welcome additions and um yeah that, that was that was black church <laughs> yeah it was cool though um i keep thinking about the pastor's messaging during that particular service right we talked a lot about he we talked a lot about the resurrection the miracle of the resurrection which was basically the focus of our Easter lesson for last Sunday or the two Sundays before anyway and the pastor pastor J shout out to pastor J he he killed that he killed that sermon really like one thing he did that i really liked was liken the resurrection to a coming out narrative Right. I don't Yeah, what'd you think about that, Derek? I
1: liked it. Um now he's queer himself. I don't know if you right. knew that. Okay. Or maybe our, our audience doesn't know that. But he's queer himself and he tied it into Diana Ross's I'm Coming Out song. Yo. And then that the, was amazing. And then the band came in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I like saw people out there with their cameras and stuff and I was like, "Oh, I can do this. I need to bring out my camera and listen to this man play i Coming Out, I'm Coming Out while talking about Lazarus being Restored to life through the resurrection, but that that was amazing. Yeah, I
1: really like that And his main point was that the resurrection if it's just an abstract truth that's like on the shelf It's irrelevant if it doesn't lead to us having changed lives and additional hope and and Encouragement and the way we treat each other and all these other things like because Jesus is alive again. That means everything is different
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm He was talking about what a gift every breath is as well and I wish I would have written some things down from that but he in essence said what I what I got from the sermon anyway mm-hmm. was in essence that until we have until we breathe every breath with the intention of a knowledge of the miracle of the resurrection we are not living resurrected lives every breath truly is a gift and you know we talked a lot about he talked a lot about breathing and I kind of missed, mm-hmm. you know, all the all what led to that messaging. But ultimately, the message that I got from it was we need to breathe intention to every moment of our life. Every breath should be an intentional attempt at life in Christ. Right. It's about every breath is a new life. And he
1: said very poetically, my last breath could have been my last breath. Mm. And so yes. that every new breath we have is a new chance on life and a, and a resilient hope of yes, there's something to live for and something to go
0: on living for. Yeah, that that was a bar. So Easter Sunday, last Sunday at Black Church was a lot of fun. What was the name of the church, Derek? Union Church. Union, Union church. United Methodist Church. Yeah in the South End there. Great service. So if you're in the Boston area, highly recommend it. Pastor Jay Williams? Yes. That's him, yes. Okay. So news this week. I think the big story is um in my opinion, definitely that young man at BYU. Valedictorian. Yeah. What's his name? Matthew Easton. Matt Easton. Matt yeah. Easton. That name sounds familiar, first off. But um anyway. Matt Easton. What did he do, Derek? So I have
1: no idea who I had no idea who he was before this, but like last night I saw ooh, some dude comes out in his graduation speech. Um, and then I found a video of it, and it 's really cool like what's what 's cooler than him coming out was the response of the audience, I think, because mm-hmm. yeah, we come out all the time sometimes to a blank wall right in terms of reaction, but people cheered earlier in his uh in his talk when he mentioned l g b t people and he mentioned siblings of color, people like cheered in support, and then he came out two thirds of the way into his talk. And basically said, "I'm proud to be a gay son of God." Mm. And people cheered, and I think that is a change. Like, if that happened when uh, you know President Wilkinson was the president, that wouldn't have happened. <laughs> yeah.
0: no cheering. No cheering at all. Yeah That was no small thing to do at BYU either. The fact that this young man came out to such a large audience at such a school as BYU, that is not insignificant. And like you said, that response, because of where he did it and the way in which he did it as the valedictorian, was not insignificant either. Like, my initial response to that whole thing was, first of all, go off, Matt Easton. So proud of you, man. Like, that was an incredible thing you did. And it really was a mood. Like, it was kind of, I viewed it a little bit as a bit of a middle finger to the establishment. It was just such a, it was such an unapologetic affirmation. Of the existence of queer people everywhere Mm -hmm. in the space of BYU because he went on to say after that that he knew that the things he learned at BYU would bless him and be able to allow him to exist in all kinds of spaces as a gay son of God so he not only came out but he affirmed the validity of his own existence and the existence of all other people in the LGBTQ community and the validity of their existence in a space like BYU. That was an incredible thing he did. He could have just came out, said, I'm gay, and been done with that. But no, he had to, and I appreciated what he did, in making sure that he validated the existence and the experience of every other gay person at that university in that room. That was an incredible thing. Right, the
1: thing is, even if just one person comes out it makes the whole place safer. Yes. Because then others will know how how they'll be received or they'll realize I'm not the only one. Just one dissenting voice. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Ash's conformity experiments in the... um, So Solomon Ash was... Was
0: this the guy with the elevator experiments? No,
1: this is the guy with the uh, different lines on the card experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to talk about the whole thing but basically what he discovered is the presence of even one dissenting voice makes it so much easier for other people to dissent in doing the right thing yeah so he had um, people look at cards with different lines on them and a whole bunch of people were planted to say the wrong thing and then the test subject the real test subject um, many times just conformed and said the wrong thing even though it was obviously wrong right but if they had a, a confederate planted who just one of them said the right thing then it was so much more likely for the dissenter to be uh to this for the test subject
0: to dissent also. Mm. Yeah. So basically it's a big deal to have just one dissenting voice in a space like that at BYU. And the
1: thing about BYU is many many people might not know the history, but in the 1970s there were actual experiments on gay folks where they would shock us. Well, I wasn't there, but shock <laughs> my people. Yeah. Um associating the uh, sort of this aversive conditioning of of associating the painful electrical shock Mm. with erotic images of men. And um, well, it didn't work. It clearly didn't work. Um, It didn't make anyone straight. uh, And it 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 had a lot of suffering. Now in my case what that would have done was condition me to just like electricity because there's nothing that will stop me from liking men. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, it's awful. Like this type of torture therapy has gone on under many different forms for the past few decades and um now there's conversion therapy of other sorts that we really need to resist as well.
0: Mhm. Conversion Conversion therapy of other sorts. I did not know that new conversion therapy was becoming a thing. This is more than just physical torture at the... Yeah,
1: now it's like, oh, if you do the right thing, you'll end up straight. Oh, those things, okay. Yeah. Yeah,
0: those... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that might be all we need to say about that, but you're totally right. We, we've seen a lot of times in our community, at least... Not, not as much recently, and I will say that, but we still see, to a disturbing degree, an amount of people who will encourage this idea that you can pray the gay away, as it mm-hmm. were. And I think there's going to be less of those after what Matt Easton did, at least at BYU. The fact that this man, as a valedict- valedictorian, did that, I mean, you know how people at BYU are. A lot of folks there, a lot of folks in the church even, Still, tie a decent amount of their sense of self worth to things they accomplish. So, I'm not saying this is the most healthy thing, but I am saying that uh, since a valedictorian said it, people are going to think twice next time they think about validating or, sorry, invalidating a queer person's existence because that will supposedly, you know, make them better as a result or allow them to thrive more by invalidating their existence. This man, Matt Easton, who's the valedictorian, is proof that you can clearly be your authentic self, and still thrive. And that he did that in front of a crowd that is not so inclined to think as much is significant. Right. Yeah. Anyway, that is one piece of news this week. Another piece of news, new study. Religious couples report greater sexual satisfaction. Um, this is This is interesting. First of all, it should be noted that this study came out of BYU and Baylor, so, okay. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's supposed to make me feel any particular kind of way, but for those of you who don't know about Baylor, Baylor is a Christian university. There's actually a lot of crossover in faculty from Baylor and BYU. A couple of my professors at a um, couple of my professors at BYU either taught at Baylor or went to Baylor. But um, yeah, they, what did they do? They did a test on 1,300 couples, ages 18 to 45, that are published in the Journal of Psychology and Religion and Spirituality. And the study centered on whether couples considered their marriage sacred and how that view impacts the satisfaction with their intimate interactions. So the basic conclusion was that religion is one of those things that will help people improve their relationship. Mm -hmm. And as a result of having your relationship improved, a natural byproduct of that will be better sex. So that Uh makes sense to me. It's just not something I guess I saw coming. Usually I hear a lot of, and this will go into the next piece of news here, but usually a lot of the stories I heard growing up in the church or a lot of stories I heard from people who grew up in the church, when it comes to sexuality, there's either a lack of knowledge, a lack of willingness to talk about it, or there's a lot of negative experience. That could just be what I've chosen to expose myself to or what I was exposed to. But based on that alone, I simply was not inclined to believe the conclusions of this study. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man.
1: Well, I haven't I haven't seen this study, so this is the first I've heard of it. But I have so many questions about their methodology. Like, is there did they take into account people like raised religious and then now they're not because mm. that could change a lot of things versus people raised in a non-religious household. Mm. Um. And depending on what the religion is, what is their access to, um, you know, facts about sexual life? Uh, Because I imagine – part of what I've heard is that many people, if they Mm. grow up in a sheltered environment, like don't know how their bodies work or don't know how their partner's bodies work. Mm. And unless someone gives them that information and says, yeah, it's okay, um, then they don't have a good sexual uh, relationship in their even even in a marriage, right? Some of these people are told, maybe at BYU, that oh, if you do all the right things, save yourself for marriage, and then you get married, it will automatically be good sex. And that's yeah, not true. It's not. So I'm just curious what what groups uh did they study? Was it just LDS people? Was it people of all religions? Um, how did they compare um to people who are raised not religious or people who were raised religious, and then left it. Um, mm. All these things
0: can make make a big deal. I agree. I agree. I'll have to check into that. But uh, I believe, at least from what it says in the study, a lot of these people are still, these are just regular Christians. Like, there are some LDS people in there, I would assume. But a lot of those folks are, all these folks are religious or identify as actively religious. Mm-hmm. So something to consider. And, um Yeah. Another another conclusion they drew was that, you know, since a lot of couples are tend to be less satisfied with their marriage when their sex isn't good, um, they're more they're less inclined to last. So another thing they were trying to say was that since religious mm-hmm. people's mm-hmm. since religious people are of consec- are naturally trying to improve their marriages, their sex is going to be better. Therefore, that is not an issue in their marriage which is another conclusion they were trying to draw when it came to talking about why religious couples tend to stay in relationships that last longer than people who are not religious. So did you hear
1: Sister Wendy Nelson's talk from a few years ago about the differences between worldly sex and, like, what was it? Worldly sex versus marital religious intimacy? And basically her premise
0: was this wasn't at conference, right? This was like the single no, adults somewhere. This was somewhere else. It wasn't at conference. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about cuz I remember having a little bit of an argument with a friend about it, uh just about this idea of inviting the Holy Ghost into the bedroom which <laughs> just hit my ear wrong. I don't know. <laughs> I just was not ready to hear that, but yeah. But now I, I don't
1: I actually do agree that that um if what you're doing you're ashamed of um, then the thought of the Holy Ghost being there will probably make you feel weird Mm. but if what you're doing you're not ashamed of oh sure like bring the Holy Ghost, there's going to be a party right? (laughs) Because if it's not wrong if it's not it's not like something you're sneaking and doing, like her point was if you're a married couple and you bring in the Holy Ghost it makes it better and like yeah if you're not sneaking around, it's not like
0: It's not about the sneaking around though. It's just it's just I don't want nobody watching, you know? Like that is is all I'm trying to say. Well it was just a weird idea to invite a third party into into the act of intimacy. Like maybe my mind is just not in a place to hear that, but Well I I don't know. The way she worded it. Yeah,
1: I I get it. There's people might feel icky, but Mm. but part of it is is Infusing it with actual meaning Absolutely. and relevance, because if you can that say with. if you can say that this act is is a sacred and holy spiritual act and that we are justified in doing this and we're doing the right thing and we are fulfilling our obligation, so I should tell you this was really weird. I was teaching a gospel principles class. now I don't know how there was by some miracle they let me teach gospel <laughs> principles but i I and you're basically, still teaching it I, yeah now now I'm still teaching gospel doctrine um but in the past i switched between gospel doctrine and the gospel principles in the gospel principles class i made the argument about how um husbands are biblically obligated to sexually satisfy their wives i agree with that and um and i well i'm not going to get into why but you can email me later if you want (laughs) to know my reasoning why but so many times it's uh, that can be neglected in straight uh, relationships, um, and so I wanted to lift that up.
0: Mm. Okay, and that's a that's a good thought to lift up.
1: Yeah, but but my point is, if you can like say, "Oh, look, I'm doing something. I'm serving someone else. I'm I'm infusing this act with a particular meaning and mm-hmm. a particular joy," then it becomes something other than just
0: mating. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's the I've always, I mean, you and I have had this conversation before, but I I believe that sex for it to truly be sex has to be infused with meaning, which is part of why I believe that God has commanded us to be married before we engage in that act. It is indeed a high, the highest act of physical intimacy we can engage in, and it would stand to reason that we would want to share that with somebody who we intend to spend the rest of our lives with, somebody that we intend to serve wholeheartedly, someone that we intend to love deeply and I don't believe that sex as intended this idea of sex being infused with this intention I don't believe that is as inclined to happen unless it happens within the bonds of marriage Mm -hmm. you know the place designed for that kind of commitment designed for that kind of love that kind of fidelity which is what I believe personally why the Lord commands us to be married before we engage in that act and I lost the rest of that thought (laughs) well what I
1: was gonna say is part of that is you have to be you have to be feel safe with your partner yes. feel like okay i'm in a secure place with this person they're not going to you know run away they i i we have a long-term invested relationship here um, we can communicate which is very important for mm-hmm. for sexual relationships we can trust one another and most importantly we can be vulnerable with one another there are so yes. many couples who probably are afraid to tell their partner what they want what they really are interested in yes and just being able to do
0: that with someone is so freeing mm, absolutely I think I think also about a lot of the women I encountered while I was at BYU particularly how because at BYU there's such an emphasis put on you know pairing up and getting married and stuff mm-hmm. that a lot of women there are willing to put up with they're they're not as inclined to share what it is they want because they want to s- just seem, am- just amenable to everything that the man wants in order to, in order to get married. Mm. This was like very plain to me. I don't know if you've ever watched the Provo Bachelor. Any of those episodes? No. Okay. Nope. This is where this really came out to me, and this was just a hot mess. But in the like the second episode, it's like the Provo Bachelor. So there's one guy and there's like 20 women that are all trying to like get with this dude. And, and they're all LDS? They're all LDS. Oh, Pres- most of them are LDS. But presumably they're all LDS. And uh, this dude comes out and he starts like putting on his own little talent show. He starts doing all these awkward dance moves and whatnot. And all these women are cheering him on as if he's doing a good job. And I'm like, this is why. Like this, It was just one reason why I didn't trust a lot of Mormon women. Because one that kind of... The, the kind of women that encourage that mediocrity are probably the same kind of women that will fake it in the bedroom. And I can't be messing with that. You know what I'm saying? Just, right. I can't be right. dealing with a woman who acts like everything I do is fine. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. What you just said about this idea of communication, this idea of being vulnerable, it is so necessary in a marriage. You really need to have that level of honesty, that level of emotional and mental intimacy with somebody right. to the point where you can communicate what you want with them and... Sometimes more importantly, mm-hmm. what is not working for you?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm part of this Facebook group called Improving Intimacy in Mormon Marriages.
0: Yeah, how's that going?
1: It's it's a cool group, and okay. I feel so sorry for all the straight people in the group, <laughs> which is mostly straight people. But what I've realized is that if they could just learn from the queer community and queer relationships, they could save themselves a lot of heartache. Can you talk about that a little more? Yeah, yeah. Um, Part of it is, I guess, in order to have come out um, in in the queer world, you have to have done some processing and some thinking and reflecting about who you are, what it is you want, what it is you want from a from a partner, even. Um, and and then just inherent in that experience gives you some measure of of increased agency over over yourself. And I think a lot of people go into a straight marriage, uh especially in the Mormon world, um they're just they're told nothing other than don't have sex before marriage and then okay. once you get married, you'll figure it all out. And that actually doesn't work. Mm-mm. Um and I think um you end up people in marriages that they don't know how things work and mm-hmm. they don't and or they don't know what they want or they don't know even what the options are. <laughs> And they don't know how to communicate with their partner. Um, And I think that's one of the part of there. There's a lot of shame and stigma, even in marital sex for many Mm -hmm. latter day saints that they, they're embarrassed about how their body works or how, or whatever they just can't. And in the gay world, you just get over that because you, you, well, if you're with someone who has a similar anatomy to you, you you know, a little bit more about how that works. And, then then there's just the f- the fact of communication if two men are going to have quote set oops sex um you have to actually talk about what you're going to do there's no one way of having gay sex there's just a number of I'm not going to get into the details but there's <laughs> there's a number of <laughs> configurations that could happen whereas I think many straight people think oh sex is just this one particular position even or mm. one arrangement or one goal or anything and um and so just in the in the gay world, you have to communicate either verbally or non-verbally about what it is you're gonna do and why and and what, and in the and there's just so many things I imagine that happen in the straight world that are routine and not really thought out, mm. and and they don't even realize they can. Like I'm sure there's a lot of people who say I didn't realize we could do that, <laughs> um, and these are just some of the things I've learned from the improving Mormon
0: marriages. Group, Cool, man. That, um... Okay, I guess I don't need to say anything else about that, but that segues well into this uh, other piece of news. A friend of ours, Daniel Burgess, and his colleague Ethan Brett, they've come out, or they're coming out with a new book. It's going to drop on May 1st, called Divine Sexuality, subtitled, An LDS Resource for Understanding Our Sexuality and a New Approach to Addressing Pornography. Now, I talked with Daniel about doing a book like this last year, something that would in essence combine the stories of saints with some, with some professional opinion, you know, whether it be from activists, doctors, people who've studied this for a living like Daniel, mm-hmm. uh, basically a resource that would des- be designed to take away the shame and the guilt that comes with sexuality in the LDS church and add some add a degree of compassion to that as well as experience and, um, uh, I suppose expert knowledge because mm-hmm. Daniel has a lot of that. He's been doing this for over a decade. I don't really know his colleague Ethan, but um, this is in essence what they do for a living. I've yeah. I've been privileged to get an early get an early manuscript of this book. Um, not I've only read you know the introduction and the first I suppose first two or three sections, but I'm really liking what I'm reading just mm-hmm. based on what I know about Daniel and the kind of person he is. Just there's a ton of compassion in this book, and I really like this mix of I mean, you're going to talk about the gospel anyway in a book titled Divine Sexuality, and both Daniel and Ethan are LDS. So I I would rightly expect them to bring an LDS perspective into Mm -hmm. that, to quote scripture, to talk to quote general authorities. But this really I really wish I had a resource like this when I was coming up, when I was younger. Because just in these first few pages, there's so much compassion and there's so much knowledge being dropped that help that would have helped you know twelve thirteen year old me come to terms with the things that I was feeling as a young man and feel less guilty mm-hmm. about them. Probably my life would have been a little bit different had I had this knowledge back then, which is one reason why I'm so so excited for this book to drop.
1: Yeah, I don't. I knew that this book was coming out. I just haven't seen it yet. Um, I do know Daniel personally. He and I have got, have had a lot of conversations over the past few years. Um, I'm real curious as to how he addresses orientation and gender identity, if he does so in this book. Um, I, I don't know if he does, uh, but part of the thing is, like straight people wouldn't even know they had an orientation if it weren't <laughs> for us, Correct. queer people. And so there's a sense in which we've, we've uplifted that conversation. Um, and and just get, giving people accurate information about the real world, and also accurate information about our doctrine, because there's a lot of folklore and a lot of other sort of folk teachings that get passed around yep. um, that that aren't actually true and yep. aren't even part of our official doctrine. And those go um, in there too. Like the it, were you, on your mission did did you hear this uh this horrible folk teaching that the harder you work the hotter your wife will be. Yep. Yep. Well, see, that's the type of stuff that damages people's sexuality because, like, w- yeah, it can lead lead to problems later because then later in their life, people will, will wonder, like, yeah, you know. But I mean, at, at the root of it is this misogyny of, oh, if I work, women are a prize to yes. be won, and the harder I work, the better. And that's not at all, like, each individual woman has worth on their on her own dignity and mm-hmm. it's 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 unrelated to those things and so just all these folk teachings can really damage people um especially people feeling guilt over n- um natural and normal biological processes um and and how the how our uh, how those things work mm-hmm. people can easily feel guilty about them and then that messes things up and yeah yeah
0: yeah So really looking forward to this book coming out soon. Again, it's called Divine Sexuality. It's by Daniel Burgess and Ethan Brett. It's going to hit the shelves, at least on Amazon, May 1st. And it looks like it's only going to be selling for like 10 bucks. So get yourself a copy. Get yourself some Mm -hmm. sexual intelligence. Highly encourage it. You got the headphones on. How did that sound when I said that? (laughs) Great. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right, so I think that's it for news. So we're going to go ahead and move on to the Come Follow Me manual. And this week, it was basically the parable of the Good Samaritan.
1: Yeah, I really only wanted to say one thing about the parable of the Good Samaritan because we've, you know, people know this one very well. But what they probably don't realize very well is what it says about labeling identities Mm. because Jesus is the one who surprised people with, with saying the word Samaritan. And he clearly names the third uh, person as a Samaritan in the parable. And then he asks the, uh, the lawyer who was it that showed mercy on him, and the lawyer was the one who refused to name the identity. Hmm. He said, grudgingly probably, because he couldn't bear to say the word Samaritan, he said the one who showed mercy on him. And for all those people who say, well, you can't identify as gay or you can't identify as black or you can't identify as whatever identity is most relevant to th- your experience at that moment, here's Jesus saying, yes, these labels matter. Mm-hmm. And it's the, um, the the people that are on the wrong side that refuse to use the labels. Yeah, uh, And obviously that's something the queer community gets hit with a lot. They want to say, oh, you're not queer. You're just a straight person with, A willpower problem or you're someone that's straight and you're afflicted with with same-sex attraction Mm -hmm. like it's an affliction (laughs) it's not (laughs) Um, I just find that so so precious and in in the um, in the Greek text the word for Samaritan is the first word in the sentence Mm -hmm. uh, when the Samaritan is is introduced and that's not the same for priest and Levite you've got some some other stuff that comes first but when it Samaritan comes first in that sentence, it has a position of emphasis um, within that clause, hmm. and I, I find that very important that, that he was able to name people's identities.
0: Okay. This time that I read through the lesson, or you know, took time to go through it, I thought about the priest and the Levite in particular. Like we, mm-hmm. we know the story of the Samaritan. Uh, first, couple thoughts that came into my head with the Samaritan was simply the fact that. Jews and Samaritans didn't get along, which mm-hmm. I think is one big thing that people take away from, from the parable of the Good Samaritan. But I was thinking about the priest and the Levite in ways that I might be like them when it comes to my brothers and sisters. Oftentimes, we are commanded to be the Good Samaritan. We talk about this knowing that we have to be the Good Samaritan, but we don't always know what it looks like to be the Good Samaritan, even though the Samaritan shows us Mm -hmm. what that looks like. Something that always stands out to me about the Samaritan was that he's there just about every step of the way, from coming upon him, Mm -hmm. pouring oil Mm -hmm. and wine in his wounds, taking him to Mm -hmm. an inn, staying with him at the inn, and then making sure that if he can't be there he makes sure that he has that the Samaritan that you know the, the person that he that's hurt make sure that he has what he needs if he can't be there yeah and that's that it that is what I, I believe being a Samaritan is it's being with somebody for as long as you can every step of the way using whatever means mm-hmm. you can to make sure they are you know healed nursed back to health and where I was thinking about the priest and the Levite was um, this incident that happened at BYU not too long ago. I think this was actually in the last year. A friend of mine told me about she was walking on BYU's campus, walking through the dorms, and she saw a Confederate flag displayed in someone's window, called the honor code office because, of course, no one else had, and she wasn't immediately taken seriously. Now, I know that people in that particular area of BYU's campus walk by that window all the time. It's not exactly a hard-to-miss thing. For one thing, it was a Confederate flag. For another thing, it was on the walking path in plain view of anybody who walked by it. That no one said or did anything was, Mm -hmm. you know, a pretty disturbing thing to me. Now, I understand why the priest and the Levite would have passed him by, first thing I'd be like is okay, got nothing to do with me. I'll be on my way. Or like the second person who walked upon them, you might look upon it and be like, that's sad. That is just terrible. On with my day. You know? Yeah. Just that is, I, I feel like people do that second thing all the time. Mm-hmm. They will acknowledge how bad something is or they will acknowledge the questionableness of a situation but they don't step in to do anything about it. And I was just thinking about how this young lady who relayed this story had to be the one to acknowledge the pain that she was feeling. She had Mm -hmm. to be the one to call the honor code office. She had to be the one to say anything, even though I'm certain there was somebody that walked by that Confederate flag and knew that probably should not be there. So when it comes to, I don't know, allyship or mourning with those who mourn, comforting those who stand in need of comfort, all I know is that Whatever is in my capacity to do, I should be doing it. Now, that is an easy enough thing to say, I suppose. But every time I think about the priest and the Levite, I'm just like, Mm -hmm. that's not even the bare minimum. You know, when it comes to mourning with those who mourn, comforting those who stand in need of comfort, what they did was not even the bare minimum. So we should always be seeing how much we can do and do that much. And part of the thing is, uh, so Bishop Gene,
1: Robert, uh, Gene Robinson, who was the first uh, openly gay Episcopal bishop in the world, mm. he said something along the lines of It's not enough to, uh, to rescue people. Uh, you know, so imagine you've got this river and you see drowning people in the river. It's not enough to, to get those people and pull them out. Mm. You have to go upriver and see what's throwing them in the river. That's the real thing we need to do. And I think a lot of the LGBT work, even the good work that's done among the um, Latter-day Saints, is a lot of just pulling people out of the river. Mm. It's about um, bandaging up the, the messes that, that others have made. And it's not about going to the source and saying, what's going wrong here and how can we fix this? Which is really um, very analogous to what's what's happening with the um, Good Samaritan. Is we have to think, well, who are the robbers that that uh that beat the I was just victim. about to say yeah that.
0: that made me think so are we going to acknowledge that this dude is just in the foot he's just going through the desert and he gets attacked we're not going to acknowledge the fact that he was attacked in the first place like how is that able to happen mm-hmm. so that is yeah that's a critical thing to acknowledge i did not think of that at all yeah all right was there anything else you uh got from this particular lesson nope all right no. Um, one more other thing I, I feel like is worth mentioning simply because this is a lesson I am still learning and I'm trying to learn is that uh, we must be willing to forgive others in order to receive forgiveness. And that is a uh, it's a really hard mm-hmm. It's a really hard thing for me to do, man. like <laughs> this is where we learn about the 70 times seven thing. and I was thinking about that. Oh, gosh, I don't even remember why I was thinking about that this weekend. Okay. This is what happened I was hanging with a friend and um, she relapsed I'm not gonna get into too many any details of her addiction but she was like super down about you know where she was as a person hmm and we had a brief talk about what the atonement is a brief talk about so long as we are trying we are able to access the power of the atonement we are not any less worthy of love any less worthy of blessings simply because we mess up so long as we are willing to get back on the covenant path that buzzword again and keep pushing forward then we can be forgiven and we should be forgiven the lesson that we are to take from that is that we have to forgive as our father in heaven would forgive if we are to receive that same grace right so this is something you know I thought of a lot when I was with that friend this is something I think about a lot for myself Uh, Having come from dealing with a pornography addiction, I know that just the knowledge that Heavenly Father still loves me in spite of how often I mess up is a very very comforting thought. And ultimately the thing that led me to be able to recover or Mm -hmm. be in recovery with this amount of sobriety was just the knowledge that even messing up is not going to diminish my worth. It's not going to diminish my value. And because I've been extended that grace, it is my obligation to extend that grace to others who trespass against me. Mm-hmm. and one more thing that's worth mentioning. Jesus did not literally mean 70 times 7. He was just trying to communicate this idea yeah. that you have to keep forgiving people. Right. Because a lot right. of us are going yeah, to mess no up. Limit. Yeah, no limit. Yeah, There's no limit to how many times you got to forgive your brother because there's no limit to how many times our Father in Heaven is going to forgive us. Right. That's all. <laughs> so, yeah, if there's no other thoughts about... Um,
1: no other thoughts about that. I mean, right. I just have one thing for the prayer roll, and that's all I have.
0: Cool. Uh, I got some for the prayer roll as well. So we're going to move on to the prayer roll. Derek, who are you putting on man? Okay, so I'm putting
1: Dan Peterson. Um, he's a, a, a scholar. Um, his his main f- field is Islamic studies. Um and a lot of the stuff he does on on that level is is pretty decent, right? Okay. It, it it's a, a somewhat conservative understanding of of Islam, but uh, but he's but so he talks. He has this blog. Did did you read his blog post?
0: Did you send it to me? Because if did. you sent it to me, then I read it.
1: This is the one that basically compared gay activists to Nazis. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah okay so so there's all Talk sorts of problems or all sorts of problems with that, especially in part because the real Nazis were anti gay <laughs> they put my people in in concentration camps um not to near the, the the same as as the uh the Jews or the romani but um but yeah, so here's the situation, mm. apparently the classical association of the middle west and South, which is this uh, academic um, society for classicists, was going to have an academic conference at BYU. And then some people said, hey, wait a minute, that's not very appropriate. Now, if you don't know anything about classicists, they're la- basically all pro-gay because they study, uh, you know, Greek and Roman literature, culture, society. And they realize, look, they know things about contextually rele- uh, relevant facts and you know how just knowing one other culture other than your own helps you dethrone a lot of prejudices and assumptions about the way things are um and so the classicists are all i'm assuming pro-gay and many of them are gay themselves and they decided hey wait a minute maybe we shouldn't have this conference at a place like byu and so eventually they they uh the leadership retracted retracted this um plan um i think byu must have invited them uh to have their conference on campus and then they declined that invitation now what dan peterson is doing is distorting and twisting this in the most vicious way this isn't censorship this is like okay suppose like um, suppose I, I did something really bad to you, James, mm. and then I invite you to dinner and you're like, no, I don't want to come to your house for dinner. That's not censorship. You're not, I can still have my own dinner. Yeah. Right? I, you know, it, this this classical society is not, they're not saying, well, BY, we're not going to publish things from BYU. They're not saying anything like that. We're just saying, we have a choice of where we want to do this and we don't want to do this at your place because you have these policies in place that marginalize um, queer and trans people, and I mean, I think that's totally fair. And what he's doing is considering it equivalent to the Nazi book burning, which is the trying the sort of elimination of information. They're not trying to eliminate any information. They're just saying, okay, if you're not going to be safe, we're not going to show up. Um, and he also uh, compares it to to Orwell's 1984 and and how um he basically says that the liberal activists are being intolerant and I- in saying tolerance is intolerance now i've got to just say one thing real quick the word tolerance isn't an um it isn't an absolute uh value like an un, um what it is it's a lot like the word moderation which is contextually dependent well it, you can't just say moderation is where we're going to you know this ultimate goal of of a of a rival no it's a a balancing of things moderation is a negotiation of things and it's the same thing with the word tolerance mm. like uh, this idea of the tolerance is hypocritical is is just like saying moderation is hypocritical for example if i have red and yellow and you ask me to like find a moderate place obviously we would have orange but then you would say well look orange has a little bit of the extremes in it like it has a little red in it, it has a little yellow in it, so you're being hypocritical by no no of course it's going to have a little of the extremes in it that's what moderation is and the thing about tolerance is tolerance by definition is going to have a little intolerance in it because you're either going to tolerate the bigots or you're going to tolerate the people the bigots don't like the fact of of the mortal world that's Full of sin means not everyone is is uh, on the same page uh, and there's going to be some people that are jerks and either you tolerate them or you tolerate the people that are under their thumb. Mm. So yeah, tolerance by definition is going to toler- tolerate some degree of intolerance. It's just a matter of which intolerance you're going to tolerate. <laughs> are you going to tolerate <laughs> the bigots uh. or are, are you going to tolerate the people who actually which I think is a very Christ-like move, to stand up with those at the very bottom. That
0: is what Christ would do.
1: And so what he's trying to do is saying that the liberal activists behind this are engaging in censorship and engaging in um, somehow some type of activism that's not playing fair, that it's, uh, it's basically prejudice. Now, he tries to make this prejudice against religion. It's not prejudice against religion. It's not. It's not. Like I love religion. I'm part mm-hmm. of this religion. Yeah. The problem is not the religion. The problem is the people distorting the religion to hurt queer people. Mm. Um, so, what are your thoughts? Now, I do have to say, I was trying as I was preparing for today, I looked at Dan Peterson's blog, and he deleted the post. Ha! <laughs> he deleted it. I don't know how. I mean,
0: probably yeah. people complained. People or, came for him, man. Like I don't know if you saw some of the comments. I didn't that were read on the other- comments. Okay. So like I saw a lot, I, I saw a couple other spots. On uh, you know on Facebook or Twitter post uh, Dan's article either to express either to affirm it or to drag it uh-huh. and if you affirmed it there was people in your comments section dragging you for doing so
1: yeah and f- what I really found found bad is this sort of conspiracy theory behind it of basically that the liberals are out not just seeking coexistence but seeking the like elimination yeah. right that now that now that liberals have won the gay marriage war we're gonna go and like hurt everyone L- let me tell you what the equivalent would be it would be if i as a gay person we won the supreme court whatever now everyone ha- has to be gay that's the equivalent yeah that is has that literally has been to done to us mm-hmm. for centuries we were told to be straight Mm -hmm. and we were forced to try to be straight like we're not going around taking away people's straight marriages if you have a straight marriage and you want to keep it fine you can keep it it's just like obamacare and insurance Mm -hmm. you can keep (laughs) your doctor if you like yeah if you're we're not going to take away your straight marriages Mm. all we're saying is everything that you assume as part and take for granted as part of a full human life we, won't, we We have we have the right to that too. That's all we're saying. What you consider a full human life, we should have as well to okay. be with our, our. So we're not trying to eliminate straight people. I mean, I love straight people because they have lots of gay kids, <laughs> right? Yeah. But anyway, your thoughts on this, especially your reaction as
0: as uh, from your perspective. And I just don't like anybody who tries to disguise their bigotry as compassion or as oppression. You know what I'm saying? Like. People who are bigoted stay trying to make themselves the victim of situations, and that's going to lead perfectly into who I want to put on this prayer roll. But I just wanted to say that this is nothing new. This is an old move that bigots use. Either try to demonize the people who are just seeking their rights by making yourself a victim in some way or simply just, I don't know. I forgot the other thing I said, but let me tell you somebody else who did that same mm-hmm. thing this past week. I don't know if you heard this story. I feel like there are a bajillion thought pieces online about it already, but um, at Howard University, which is like the HBCU of HBCUs, and if you don't know what that is, HBCU stands for Historically Black College or University, it is one of the oldest and has the most notable alumni. It is a sacred space for black thought. That is what Howard University Mm -hmm. represents to so many black people across America, whether you've gone to Howard or not. You know about HU and you respect the institution that is HU because of the people it was able to churn out because what it was able to do for black people in spite of what was going on in the country at the time of its founding. It is a private university that should also be mentioned because what happened recently is super important and a lesson in white entitlement. I don't know this guy's name. I remember looking it up, but I can't really pronounce it. But this is what's been happening at Howard University more and more people have been using the yard which is an extremely sacred space at Howard University like if when you say the yard it's an open like quadrangle that's there at Howard University where students congregate for whatever reason Mm -hmm. you know they're just trying to chill they're just trying to do some work they're trying to like socialize the yard is where you go to do that the yard is where a lot of events happen at the beginning of the school year the yard is the hottest place to be that is what the yard is Now, people have been using, primarily white people, have been coming in to Howard University because it sits right in the middle of D.C. and using the yard as a dog park or an exercise place. Like, people have been, like, running through it, running around it, letting their dogs take dumps in it, play in it, whatever. And you know how black people are with dogs. I know. we are not the biggest fans of dogs, but, like... This is what's been happening at Howard (laughs) University is just people keep bringing their dogs and using it as a dog park. It's just a natural consequence of the gentrification that's been happening there for many years. Now, when they were interviewing people about this, obviously the black students were not okay with people using their sacred space, a place that is designed for them, made for them, designed to be a reprieve from all this nonsense that is white America. They obviously had strong feelings about people just coming through the yard and you know, letting their dogs take dumps in it. But um, there is this one white dude. I don't know how he parted his thin Caucasian lips to say this, but he in essence said, if you don't like people coming through your university that's right in the middle of D.C., maybe you should move your campus. That is what he said. This. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, I can't fathom. Like, this guy clearly... Was not in D.C. all of his life like he definitely was there for a few years tops. But the suggestion that a historically black college and university that has, first of all, been created because we could not get into the white schools. Secondly, has been there for like one hundred eighty six years. The mere suggestion that people ask you to respect their sacred space and you want them to leave or you would want them to move their campus is just peak white entitlement how on earth are you going to even suggest that you are entitled to a Mm -hmm. space simply because you want it there are so many other dog parks around DC walk through DC right now there are plenty of places to take your dog there are plenty of places to go for a run plenty of places to have picnics but don't use the yard for that this is a private university we are supposed to be protected in those spaces what further got me was this guy was gay this is a gay white dude (gasps) Yes. It's like Booty Judge. Like Booty Judge. <laughs> just like Booty Judge. But point being is what really broke my heart about this whole thing oh, no. is that somebody who should know what it's like to be oppressed, someone who shouldn't know the importance of having a safe space, still dare to tell us that we are not entitled to that space simply because he wanted it to. Yeah. So whatever your name is, white bearded dude on Instagram who clearly supports Trump. Go on this dude's Instagram, by the way. It is just a hot mess. But we are just not here for that today. Like I said, there are a ton of thought pieces on the internet about this already. I I don't know Mm -hmm. how many other thoughts I could share that wouldn't mirror them. But, you know.
1: You know, bringing this back to the gospel is so much of what the gospel teaches is around uh, people who feel that they're entitled are really Mm -hmm. seeing it wrong. Mm -hmm. And... um, now there's a sense in which we're all we all have dignity and worth and unlimited potential as offspring of of the divine but that's a different kind of entitlement than what we're talking about here where people think oh just because I was born into this family or just because we're offspring of Abraham or just because we're we're rich or just because I was born you know king like I get the yeah there's all sorts of ways that that these privileges are subverted by the gospel and especially Jesus's teachings. Mm-hmm. I'm also thought about uh, thinking about Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter one, where it's it's just amazing text where she says, "Look." Uh, so basically, what she is realizing is, "Look, oh, I just found out I'm going to be the mother of the Messiah. He, he choosing me, a poor." Um, woman from being an oppressed Jew in Galilee under the Roman occupation, choosing me is basically flipping everything upside down. Mm. And that's what she says is, um, uh, and she says like God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty handed. Like did, did Trump even read this part of the Bible? I don't think he's re- I don't no. think he's read anything. I don't think so. You know, I don't think he's even re- really read. It. I don't know if he reads. Who if he reads? I don't know. But but yeah, this this really is much more subversive. Uh oh, I should I should say this um this past week I I did a pretty thorough going through this particular Slave's Bible that was printed in 1807 in London. It was intended for the for uh white people to give to enslaved people. Um and get, they left out a lot of stuff in the Slaves Bible. They left out the Exodus narrative. They left out um, so many different things. But they did not leave out the, the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. I'm like, do you realize what that says and how subversive that is? Um, and it's uh, it is definitely very interesting what they left out and what they kept in the Slaves Bible. Hmm. Quite interesting. Quite interesting.
0: Anyway, I'm getting angry as I'm talking about this. I'm supposed to be praying for these people. So I think uh, that is all we're going to say about this gentleman in D.C. This is all we're going to say about Dan Peterson. Plus, we got to get to this concert, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So that is another episode of Beyond the Block. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hope you like the new sound. We'll see you next week.
1: See you next week. Bye.